Today, I sit down with Chris Mayer, who is the co-founder and portfolio manager of Woodlock House Family Capital Fund. And Chris is a really interesting thinker. Uh, I enjoyed his writing over the years, which is why I wanted to have him on. I wanted him to kind of dive into how he thinks about the world, what are the more impactful ideas and interesting decisions that he's made throughout the years that have impacted his own life. So while Chris focuses specifically on investments, I think this is an episode that's applicable to anyone, even outside the domain of investing, because how he looks at the world, how he destroys his best-held ideas, how he understands you need to continue to evolve and stress test your ideas. So while we cover those broad themes, Chris also dives a lot into his investment process, his framework, how he thinks about management teams, how he thinks about great businesses, and what he's learned over all these years. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Chris Mayer. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Hey guys, it's Sean, and if you've enjoyed any of the podcasts over the years, I would love, and I truly mean love, if you check out my Momentum Makers Inner Circle community. Now, this is just a community for growth mindset learners. I mean, people who are really voracious learners. They're interested in growing and expanding and uncovering the foundational principles, mindsets, and commonalities that I've synthesized down after sitting down with hundreds of the world's most successful people. This really is a community for people who, who want to create positive change in their own lives. You're a voracious learner. You're a seeker of wisdom. You're a pursuer of self-mastery. And what you get for being part of this community is you get unlimited access to my expert masterclass calls. And so what these are is calls with people who have been on the podcast where you get to ask them specific questions and we go deep on certain topics. You also become part of this community. You get exclusive access to our monthly community calls where we discuss ideas and we grow together. You also get unlimited access to all of my book recaps. There's 50 plus I've done and I put more out each week. You also get access to my distillery, which are the mini biographies on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You also get my Momentum Monday weekly newsletter. So if you're interested in this, I would love for you to continue to grow and grow with us, our Momentum Maker community. So you guys can click the link below and check it out. Chris, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Hey, Sean, I'm doing well. How about you? I am doing really well. I thought a fun right. place to, to start this conversation would actually be a line that you posted on Twitter the other day from a book you yeah. were reading, and it's, a life spent chasing dreams is a life well spent. Anyone who does this will get to the end of his days and look back with a smile. He will have had a ball. So this is from the legendary uh, Bob Rotella, who's worked with tons of different golfers, plenty of different people in sports. And I would just love to know what this line did for you. Like, like, why did you feel compelled to post that? Yeah. Yeah. I've been reading Bob Rattel for a while. I think I have all his books and, and they're all kind of the same, but, uh, it's still great to, to read them. I mean, every time he just keeps enforcing these basic things, which by the way, I go well beyond golf, which is another reason why I think I like him. But 
Yeah, in this particular case, I think, you know, with and this relates to investing too, with golf, it's you're never gonna achieve any level of perfection. You're always going to be wanting to do better. I remember when I long ago when I was first learning to play, I'd say, boy, being able to break a hundred consistently would be great. And I did that. And then it's like, gee, you know, it'd be great if I could get in the eighties consistently. <laughs> I do that. I do that now. I'm like, boy, it'd be great to have a single digit handicap. You know, I'm like hovering at 10 and you're still never happy. You're always, you're always pushing, pushing. And investing is that way too. You know, I ne there's never been a year where I didn't think, wow, you know, I could have done better uh, or you know, there's always room for improvement. So instead of getting discouraged about never being able to uh, achieve those dreams of perfection, you just sort of use those as your ideal and realize that that's the fun. The fun is in chasing it. And when you look back on it, you'll have, you'll be satisfied that you, gave it a good go and and the result will probably be will be satisfying even though it doesn't meet, reach that state of of what you dreamed you know might be possible yeah so i i think that's important especially for investors too because there's long periods of frustration boredom and times when you're not doing well <laughs> and, and uh, just to keep that dream in mind and chase it that's the uh, think a good a good way to be well, well this has me wondering then you mentioned trying to break 100 consistently 90 80 are there benchmarks like that that you equate to investing that, that you try to follow again underneath yeah i think with investing you have to be careful and Rotella talks about this in golf too that you can't be totally focused on outcomes so yeah i used the scores there which maybe he maybe wouldn't have been the, uh, the best thing to use because in books, he also often talks about process running through the same process, you know, whether you did everything you wanted to do in that shot mentally, not regardless of how it came out. So obviously investing is similar, you know, there's a process that you want to be able to follow and you, you can't really control the result. Stuff happens all the time. Of course, we have no control over, but yeah, I would say over time, there's, a, you get more comfortable with your process. You refine it more, and it even gets simpler over time if you, if you do it well. And, and there's certain things that you're really looking for. So that that's fun to see. And so really when I evaluate an investment, looking back on it, it's not always just, well, did it deliver the highest return? But it's, you know, did I follow my process? Did it really fit? Uh, you know, what kind of work did I do on it beforehand? Can you even go kind of further? evaluate that process. I, I'd, I'd be intrigued to hear you go further on the simplification process. Like, what, what does that look like for you right now as you try to simplify more? Yeah, I think it took me a long time to learn this um, because I remember being distracted with all kinds of things that didn't really don't really matter over the long term, whether a stock works or, or, or not, whether it delivers really good returns or not. I mean, I, I remember a younger investor, I always would get hung up on things like PE ratios and, you know, the multiple today. And you get overly concerned about macro and particularly near term, near term macro, what the next few quarters are going to be like. And, and, and now, you know, I, I ignore a lot of that stuff or I have a better context for it than I did before. So I think simplifying it means for me getting it down to the real essentials. You know, I, I used to love, I still do. I, I haven't read it in a little while, but I love Marty Sovsnoff's early books. Uh, one is called Humble on Wall Street and the other was called Silent Investor, Silent Loser. And he's a very different investor than me. So if you go into those books thinking you're going to learn some secret, you're, you're not. Um, it's more of a well-written memoir, but there's one thing he, he keeps hammering home, which I really like, was he, he always says that investing is a minimalist art. 
So it's something where you get down to the essentials and he has a number of other examples. You know, the Sosnoff's law, what he calls is how your return varies inversely with the thickness of the research file. So it's like the more work you do, more complicated things get, more justification you have to do, more likely that investment's probably not going to work out. And that's echoed in some of the other great investors. You know, Chuck Ockray stands out for me. Uh, he's someone I've, I've learned a lot from. Uh, and he always says, you know, rate of return is the bottom line of all investing. It's a very, very simple concept, but he's just looking at rate of return on the uh, 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 rate of return capital, those businesses and their ability to reinvest. And everything else is sort of noise or everything. You know, you really just want to get to the essentials of what feeds into that point. Um, so that's really what I think over time. Uh, when I talk about things getting simpler, that's what I mean. You're more honed in on that kind of return of the underlying business, the rate of reinvestment, and then you back into that. You have to think about th things like competitive advantage, you know, the durability of them being able to continue to generate those returns, and you start thinking much further out. So you know, you start thinking in terms of next decade, and you see what kind of number that that can get you, then you're much less concerned about a, even a 30% drawdown in your term doesn't really mean much in the context of a 10-year journey. You mentioned that extra information isn't always helpful. There's that Grace horse racing uh, or horse betting uh, research where they basically had about 20 data points they could go off of, and they measured that in correlation with their ability to place the bet and then also their confidence level. But that what they yeah. ended up finding when they gave them additional pieces of data, so they went up to, I think, 40 pieces of data not only did their betting actually go down in terms of the positive results, but their confidence level went up. So more data, more confidence, but actually worse right. results. Uh, that's one of my favorite examples of that. Uh, I, I, I yeah, I've seen I've seen similar things like that. In fact, I put uh, an example of that in my book, How Do You Know? Uh, I think it was a slightly different example. It had to do with selecting cars and whether they had four pieces of information versus like a dozen. And you can see that, you know, they're their choices, they're, they're, they didn't get any better. Let's put it that way. In some cases, it got worse with more information. Speaking of things you write, you recently had a great article I loved, Make Haste Slowly, um, essentially talking about some of, the, some of these things, this longer-term way of thinking. But what, what intrigued me about this is in a culture where we're constantly being bombarded and, and being nudged to take action, right? How did you develop yeah. that patience over time? Yeah, I mean, it, it takes a lot, a lot of time. I remember making a lot of mistakes early because I listened to too much to the buzz of what was going on. Um, I mean, some of it is the more you study about the great businesses. You know, I, I some of this was like when I wrote Hundred Baggers that came out in 2015. So I did the research in 2014, and that was a little eye, eye, that was eye opening for me too because you realize you know these great businesses just continue to compound even through all these kinds of macro concerns and things that people are worried about. So some of it is, you know, getting a data bank of all, all these experiences in the past that uh, will help you. Um, and the other is you really pay attention to what you, where you put your attention. You know, there's, there's a line I like, I forget who said it, but was, you are what you pay attention to. So if you spend most of your time on you know, Twitter or any of the social media sites and trying to process and read what the latest news is, that's, you know, you have to limit your feed on that. Some amount of it is probably okay because you just want to be aware of things that are going on, but you really need to put your focus on other things. Uh, 
you know, and you can't, there's so much uh, economic stuff that gets put out, the forecasting, the, you know, the big picture predictions, and you really just have to tune that out. And that was hard for people to do. I know even people I think are pretty good, sophisticated investors still, you know, want to share the latest, you know, economic forecast from somebody that they like. And they just have to realize that I don't care how much you, you know, you like that person, their analysis, you can have to tune that out if you're going to be a long-term investor and really focus on owning businesses for, for a decade. Because if you're going to start making decisions that way, then when they change their opinion, then you're going to have to change yours. And for a lot of these businesses, their investable horizons way go way beyond investment cycles and whatever people are focusing on today. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of experience to be able to talk to those points. I, I want to dive back in, in a second here around what you pay attention to, but I want to dive back into that kind of that pattern recognition. Uh, you call it your data bank that you build up over years. I, I'm always intrigued about people and how quickly they can accelerate their own process. Do you think that that data bank, let's call it that pattern recognition, is something you really could have honed in and developed sooner? Or is it you just have to live a certain amount of life and just see a certain number of things before that'll really set in? No, I, th I think you could could have learned it sooner. Uh, you know, if you had the right teachers. For me, I remember early on, I experimented with all kinds of things. I mean, I remember reading like even like technical analysis books, you know, early on, different charting books. And of course, reading Soros' book and the macro stuff. And uh, even though I started with uh, Graham and Buffett, that's what got me into the in, interested in investing. Natural curiosity made me explore all kinds of things, special situations, all kinds of stuff. So, I, you know, for me, it was, I kind of had to go through it. Maybe it's my personality type, but I think someone who's maybe smarter, a little more focused, maybe a little luckier in their early teachers uh, could get those, could get those data banks, uh, get that data bank much more quickly. One of the things you do a really good job in, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, is you understand different domains and the impact like golf how that, how you can pull principles from that that apply to investing to your specific domain. And I'm wondering, are there other things you've learned outside of investing specifically, outside of studying someone like a Buffett or a Graham that has had a really profound impact on how you actually invest? Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, right behind me, these all the philosophy books behind me. Um, that I, That's why I think of generally, I've learned a lot just from studying some great thinkers of the past. I don't know, in particular... Uh, well, I mean, Alfred Krasipsky and his general semantics has been a big impact. I wrote my book, How Do You Know, is really about that. Uh, just, I would describe it kind of as a method of critical thinking. Uh, so that's been that's been a big help. Um, there's other guys I've taken inspiration from, from like uh, like I say, Buckminster Fuller is one of my favorite characters at history. I've learned a lot from him. Uh, yeah, so I would say yes. In fact, most of the reading I do now I, I, is not investment related at all. It's, it's rare that I would pick up an investment book these days. Um, but in the beginning, that was, was flip, flipped. I mean, all through my twenties, I couldn't. I just devoured every investment book I could get my hands on. And in another room, I have an investment library that uh, that has a lot of those a lot of those books. So I think you probably have to do that in the beginning. Just read a lot. Of financial stuff, different investors, different styles, learn about different periods of time, you know, bull markets, bear markets, and the experiences of thereof. thereof. Um, but then, yeah, I think uh, there's a point where you're probably filled up enough on that, and then you can start to 
branch out. I mean, I also used to read a, read a lot of business books. You know, Sam Walton's book was Made in America is one of my favorites. There's, I remember a good book on McDonald's. There's a variety of those books I, I read. But again, I, I would re- I would read very many of those today. It's just natural evolution, or at least my evolution. Now I'm more spending time reading more uh, classics. Like I just finished reading William James Varieties of Religious Experience, which is a classic I've long heard of but never read. What, and, what did you uh, take away from that? Because James is someone I, I've pulled enough different. I love William James. Yeah. yeah. I love the way he frames everything in such pragmatic terms, you know, always thinking about ideas in context of what fruits they yield. So he applies that to religion in that, in that book. But his essay, Pragmatism, actually, uh, a series of lectures that make up that book, uh, I would recommend every investor read that. Um, you know, he has a phrase I always like what's kind of the cash value of an idea, you know, at the end of the day, what is real, what is something really worth? You know, what's the practical value of it? And, um, he's an interesting thinker and he's a very good writer too. So you, you can read those books and not get bogged down. Some of these classics are of course, very difficult reads, but William James is easy to read. Yeah. Well, one of the the things that, that you noted, I think is just important to highlight is you're not just saying skip over those investing classics if you're starting out where I feel like too many people they'll hear, Oh, well, Chris just focuses on on all these uh, philosophy books. He doesn't, he doesn't even <laughs> understand the basics, but it's that it's that ascension up to mastery where first you mastered the fundamentals of the principles. You you were able to embody those, and then you can move on and start to pull principles from different perspectives. Do I have that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, that's exactly right. And I think it's good to do that too because you'll you see there's a lot of paths up the mountain. I mean, <laughs> certain people have different tastes and they'll go in different directions. And uh, but it's good to have all those different models in your head of people who have done it different ways, right? I mean, Peter Lynch, very successful. He was one of my favorites early on. I still have the hard covers of, you know, 1989. I always get mixed up which one came out first, Beating the Street or One Up on Wall Street. But there was like 89 and then 92 or three. I still have both of those books. But, you know, his style is, is different than mine. He owned a lot of securities. You know, I own nine today. He owned, you know, who knows, hundreds. So, uh, but it's good to have those those background of you know, different ways to succeed. Yeah. Talking about multiple ways to go up that mountain. I'm actually really intrigued about the way you went up the mountain. I mean, you had a somewhat interesting journey here that gave you a lot of different experiences, a lot of opportunities to see the world, learn from different people. I would love if you just kind of give a, a broad overview in terms of, of yeah. your journey early on. And I would love to dive into some specifics here. Yeah, I had, I definitely had an unconventional journey here. Um, when I right out of college, I mean, studied finance in college, but right out of college, I started in commercial banking. So I was on the debt side there for 10 years and that was actually a good place to start because you do learn a lot about different businesses and, you know, the way banks underwrite businesses, it's much more detailed than a typical equity investor. So they're, they're thinking about, you know, we used to do on-site audits. We spent quite a bit of time with management. We spent quite a bit of time trying to evaluate uh, what a business might be worth in a sale or and testing the, the, the different stress levels of it because of course our upside is capped. So we had to make sure we make sure we get our money back. And it happened in those times too. I was particularly influenced by Marty Whitman, who was, I think also started as a credit analyst. Um, so it just, it, it's a good, it was good training because it makes you focus more on downside protection. I was always interested in investing. So I started a newsletter just kind of on the side as a kind of nights and weekends hobby project. Uh, and then eventually I sent it to everyone I could think of. And 
eventually I got a deal with a publisher in Baltimore and I just jumped and did the newsletter full time, left the bank. Can, can you describe and, that process? I feel like that's a really interesting inflection point. This was with Agora Financial, right? Yeah. So I, I just had a newsletter. I, I remember uh, I would print out copies and my wife and I would stuff envelopes and send them, <laughs> send them out. Uh, yeah. I mean, the web was just, it wasn't anything like it was now. I mean, it was, I, I spent like 300 bucks maybe putting together a, a website, a very basic website. And, but it wasn't, uh, you know, I tried to market it as well as I could, but I didn't have nearly the outlets you have now. Now it's much better. Um, but yeah, then I, I used to read, they used to put out something called the daily reckoning. Bill Bonner wrote it. It was very well written. And, and, um, I corresponded with him and that's how, uh, and I sent him my newsletter. He goes, Hey, you know, maybe you'd be interested in writing this newsletter you know, for us. And so I spoke then with Addison Wigan, who was running Gordon Financial at the time. And we, we hit it off. And so that's how I made that jump. And that was great because then when I was running my newsletter, uh, I traveled all over the world, you know, all over the world, met all kinds of businesses. I mean, even some places that are pretty far out, like Mongolia and, and Myanmar, when it was just opening up. Well, yeah, to really get it. Why were you traveling? Because I know you went to 40 plus countries. Why specifically were you traveling to all these places at the time? Yeah, it was kind of a nat natural curiosity about it all. And uh, I also had this idea of uh, of finding kind of out of the way investment ideas for people. I'm kind of like Jim Rogers. or um, So yeah, so that was fun. And and I was, since I was writing a newsletter, it, was, it came out every month. Plus there were like weekly updates. So it was a lot of content. It was easy to write it when I was traveling and, you know, they paid, paid my way. So I was getting paid to see the world and get a good education. Uh, you know, I've been to China multiple times, been to India multiple times, all through Europe, all through Asia, all through South America, what, what South place Africa. left you most in all? Well, I would say there are a few places, but that's the first one that just popped into my mind is Peru because I, uh, I hiked uh, the trail of Machu Picchu starting in Cusco and it was over six or seven days. Uh, and we had two guides and we stayed at these little places along the way. It was, that was really fantastic. That and Machu Picchu itself left me in, left me in awe, but um, in Cambodia as well, Angkor Wat, it was amazing. Now these are more tourist places, but still, I mean, I remember the first time I went to China blew me away. That was 2000 and five um the first time seeing shanghai it was just incredible um the growth and this uh you know it's just a hop and boom in place uh, even i remember dubai was another place that uh when i first went there it was booming that was a uh, just incredible place to be and then i funny because then i went back to there when it was in bus in bus phases completely different uh, I remember arriving at my hotel and they knew my name already because there were so few people coming. <laughs> it was like, wow. So yeah, it's definitely it was fun doing those adventures. Yeah. This might be a tough one to answer and just kind of right off the cuff here, but mentioning just about learning so much, traveling all over the world, seeing all these different things. I'm thinking about the principle you were hitting on earlier around simplifying. If you were kind of just simplifying down what you learn by seeing the world and experiencing all those different things. Is there anything that really has stuck with you all these years later? Well, a couple of things. One I would say is that it's much, much harder to invest outside of your home market. Hmm. Uh, I, I probably 
I haven't gone back and done an accurate accounting of it, but I would say my track record on investing in those far off places is probably not good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned a lot that not to do things are just more difficult than they seem. And the other thing that sticks to me is how these stories recur. You know, you the boom around a certain place, and you can see that story repeat, repeat, repeat in other places and other times, and and it rarely works out quite that way. So yeah, I, I think the overall the overall lesson I've learned from all that traveling is just that it's very difficult to be successful in these other markets uh, where you're not as familiar with them. It takes a lot of humility there, a lot of self-awareness. I know this is something you've yeah. been posted recently. The first thing is you have to know yourself um, yeah. and just the importance of that. And I'm wondering for you, like, what has been really helpful in, in your path, in your own journey to just more self-knowledge, this better understanding of yourself, how you best operate, um, and what games it makes sense for you to play? Yeah, I mean, some of it is uh, contrasting with other people. You, you know, I have always have a pretty good correspondence either by email or talking to people, different investors. And so you can see how other people do it and, uh, and you can see what, you know, what makes you comfortable or not. So there's just certain things I, I have kind of gravitated towards also my own experiences. So, you know, I'm very reluctant to invest in say mining <laughs> and other, other people are much more comfortable with it. I've had different experiences. I've had some big giant winners in mining and some horrific losers, but I've just, kind of decided that's more of a crapshoot for me or like retail, you know, I haven't been a very good retail investor. And then there's other broadly more themes that I would say uh, that I stick to, like I've always been big on the insider ownership and alignment. And um, sometimes this is a, is a definitely a negative because there are great businesses where insiders don't own a lot of stock and, uh, but they've done great. So I've, I've missed those, but on the other hand, I think it's also kept me out of trouble. Um, so, you know, you kind of pick your own way and it's, there's not like a necessarily a right or wrong. It's a lot of personal preference and what your own personal experiences have led you to, to think is important. Yeah. Life is absolutely great. There's no black and whites here, but I am wondering for this, for you analyzing some of the, the mistakes you made, missed opportunities, the ones that still stick with you, is it more errors of omission bets you didn't place? or errors of commission, uh, investments you made that just didn't pan out? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it might be a cliche at this point to say errors of omission, because everybody likes to say that. But it's probably true. I mean, you look at stocks that you spent time looking at and never bought. Um, those are the ones that, you know, why did I never own, why did I never own Apple? <laughs> you know? Why did I never own a Microsoft? Well, you know, um, why did I never own Costco? There's just some great, great businesses that you just, um, missed. So, uh, those, those hurt, but I mean, the ones that you invested in that blew up are also ones you always remember. Um, I remember early, early on, I invested in a company called Lowen Group. It was a cemeteries and things, uh, funeral homes and Seemed like you know business you couldn't lose. Yeah, I thought <laughs> I thought that was the business you couldn't lose. Right. What's going on here? <laughs> right, that's what I thought. And then, uh, well, they got they were too levered, and then there was some accounting issues, and so basically it went bankrupt. <laughs> so that was a, that was one I always remember because I remember thinking, well, this industry you can't lose. And I was too trusting in their numbers, too easy about 
risks about leverage. And that stung because at the time it was a lot of money for me. I basically lost, lost it all. Um, so, you know, sometimes getting those early lessons like that are great too. I remember thinking even at the time it was cost of tuition and I wouldn't, wouldn't make that mistake again. Can you, can you actually so, go further in that? I'm so curious after you eventually, you said lose it all. And then you said that this is actually cost of tuition. What, what is your mindset like those first few days, weeks and months after that, when you're facing reality? Yeah. I mean, well, first you almost feel like kind of sick that you lost that <laughs> much money, you know, <laughs> start sweating. You're like, Oh my God, I worked hard for that after tax dollars and then I just blew it and, you know, doing something dumb. So yeah, first there's a, probably first stage is some pain and then, uh, yeah, you kind of hope that somehow it comes back, but then when you realize it's done, you just, yeah, then you just start going back through it and figuring out, well, what, what was the big mistakes and, um, trying to make sure you don't do that again. This has me interested, like just being able to bounce back like that, like that, that isn't true of everyone, right? Like that's a, yeah. a unique skill set. And then also one of the things you, you've mentioned again and again, is just your innate curiosity. You, you've pursued that again and again, you've mentioned that multiple times on your own path. I'm wondering, are there any other of these mindsets or attributes with, with you being able to analyze all the years saying, you know what, this is probably somewhat unique to me, uh, but this has been really beneficial for my own growth. Well, one thing I say, especially when it comes to analyzing mistakes, is then you want to learn from them, but then you want to forget them. I know that's kind of counterintuitive, but, uh, you know, Rotella, we mentioned him earlier, he talks about this too in context. Longer, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it comes up in terms of golf, right? When you hit a bad shot, the best thing to do is you forget it. Because um, you, you're going on the next shot, you don't want to be thinking about, you don't want to be frustrated that you just hit a bad shot. You just want to focus on present, that point forward. And I think it's similar with investing. You know, you want to, okay, you want to figure out what went wrong. But then once you do, you just forget it and you, and you go on. So I think the ability to forget is important. Mm. Speaking of things forgetting, I, I'm intrigued about things you'd want to remember. If you, there was going to be a business throughout all of history that if you could do one case study on, because you could hand yeah. this to enough people and say, you know what, this is what you want to study. There, there's a lot of gold in here. What business would that be? Well, I think kind of the easy lame answer would be to say Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, uh, and people have studied it to death. So, <laughs> but I mean, there's endless amounts of wisdom in Buffett, Mungers, particularly the uh, annual meetings. You know, they're on YouTube now. And uh, as people put out little clips of three or five minutes long where they answer a particular question, those are like candy. Those are great. Um, those are as good as Buffett's letters, maybe better. Well, now so, I'm really intrigued. Say you were starting out now, right? A completely different set of what you can pay attention to, what, what you can pull for your own self-directed learning here. If you were just starting out, what would be the top resources that, that you would pull from to build your foundation of knowledge? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would definitely, uh, yeah, I think those YouTube Berkshire meetings are great. I, I'd still go with Berkshire. I'd still go with uh, Buffett's letters. That was an early start for me. I still think that's a great place to start for people. They probably have more great letters to draw from. I mean, you can read, uh, you know, you can read Mark Leonard Constellation. You can read his letters. You could read, I don't know, you know, Jeff Bezos early letter in Amazon's a classic. There's a number of different letters that you could pull, but you'd have to have someone teach that or show that to you. So if you were just starting out, you'd have to be pretty lucky to just fumble, fumble along those. But I would say, you know, you f follow success. I know people like to say now, because uh, everybody's read to lab and everybody likes to say, oh, survivorship bias, survivalship bias anytime you want to say study success. But I mean, that's the way to do it. I mean, 
you know, same thing we, we've talked about golf. We might as well keep with the metaphor, right? But if you're going to learn how to play golf, you you study Tiger Woods and the, and the great pros. You don't go study the 20 handicapper, you know, you play with on weekends. So even though you, you won't reach, you don't have the talent or ability to be a Tiger or a Rory or any of those guys. Those are still the ones, you, you know, you learn from the best. I think the same with these companies. You, you learn from the ones that have been most successful over the last 20 years. I'm, I'm always fascinated when I come across a company that has been very successful doing something seemingly ordinary. So like an old Dominion Freight Lines, you know, it's a trucking company. But look at what it's done over the last 20 years. It's astounding. I and mean, it's amazing. So I'm always interested in re- reverse engineering something like that. One that I've spent a little time doing recently, I don't own it, is Watsco. Again, the HVAC distribution. You know, why? What is that business so special? What What makes it really work? Uh, it's compounded something like nineteen percent for thirty years. Why? You know, how is that possible? So I'm fascinated in those kinds of things. Um, yeah, that's what I like to do. You mentioned some of these companies like Berkshire, like like Watsco. What are some of the commonalities that that you've teased out? Um, that yeah. don't often get brought up, right? There's, there's a handful everyone always talks about. Is there anything else you're seeing that just doesn't seem to be, get as much play? Well, one of the ones I like is uh, that they have some sort of family ownership or the founder is still involved. So you look at something like, you know, Copart is another one I own. I mean, Willis Johnson was the founder, was involved in it for a long, long time. And then Jay Adair, uh, his son-in-law has been involved in the business since he was a teenager and he also owns a lot of stock. So there's this culture uh, even with Old Dominion, it's a family. The Congdens have been running it for a long, long time. Only recently, the CEO now is the first non-Congden to run it. Uh, you know, Brown and Brown was a reported earnings this morning is what I was on their call before I got on with you. Pal Brown is third generation Brown running it. Um, they own a bunch of families, still has a bunch of stock. So there's a culture, there's a long-term mindset, and there's empirical research that backs this as well, the performance of family-owned firms. And mostly that comes down to, at least from what we can tell, is that you know, they operate with lower levels of leverage, typically. They have that longer term mindset. So they invest countercyclically. When other people are uh, pulling back, they are putting capital to work. Um, yeah, and I think there's also something with incentives I haven't quite completely honed in on, but uh, a lot of times these companies have some kind of good incentive plan or there's something about the incentives um you know constellation software for example has their executives have to buy stock in the open market and they're paid on combination of return on capital and and growth or um yeah so some of these businesses uh if you don't have the inside the actual ownership skin in the game then i'm always interested in if there's some sort of other compensation scheme that's interesting or just what they focus on uh you know there's in sweden there's a whole bunch of very successful serial acquirers uh lifco ad tech lagerkrans there's a whole bunch of them and they all have this focus on capital allocation return on capital employed they all talk about it they publish it in their reports um so you know that i think that those tie into some that ties into success, yeah. long-term success. Could you even go uh, another layer deeper there in terms of like family ownership and culture, right? Like all this stuff that that's not very quantifiable when you when you yeah. pack that a little bit more. I'm wondering like what specifically are you trying to tease out there? Yeah, so this is something I've tried to fig- spend more time on. So how do you, people say, you know, has good culture. Well, what does that mean? How can you test it? 
Is there something you can look at? And there are a few things I think are interesting to look at. One is uh, employee turnover. So a lot of these businesses I mentioned, the employee turnover is very low. You look at Old Dominion, the turnover of their employees is the lowest in the industry by quite a bit. Um, you look at Watsco, their long top, the top 30 executives have been there a long time. Um, so they've got long tenured employees, long tenured management. There's this promotion from within culture. A lot of the people who are in senior management came up through the business. That's one way to kind of measure whether or not you really have that ownership culture. Brown and Brown, same way, employees own a bunch of stock. Um, so there's people who have done very well, become very wealthy over time by being owners of the business. That That's a key one. One that's maybe not as much, that's not talked about as much, but that's interesting is even to look at customer relationships and supplier relationships. Are they also very long-term? Sometimes you'll come across businesses where they may even report and say that their customers have been with them an average of X years. You know, There was a book out a while ago, I, I forget the exact title, something about the Century Club, something about businesses that have been around 100 years. And uh, one of the points that book brought up, which I thought was interesting, was the supplier relationship. So some of these businesses that have been around a long time have used the same supplier for 30 years. And that that also can be an indication of kind of a long-term relationship building culture. Um, you know, happy customers. Do customers um, enjoy, enjoy maybe is a strong word, but I mean, do they, um, do they like the, do they like what they're getting from the business? Um, these are, some of these are harder to gauge quant, quant, quantitatively as well, but there's something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why you gotta, you gotta go deep. You, you gotta do your own research there. One of the things you, you've done over, over the decades here is just a number, a number of interviews with, with management teams. When you're sitting down with management teams, are, are there common themes you're trying to, to, to tease out there when you're interviewing them? Yeah, I mean, I like to get their sense of the competitive landscape, you know, what they think their advantages are, what they think their top competitors are, how they compare themselves, how they do it, you know, what sort of metrics they focus on. That's always interesting because one of the things I also like to do then is talk to uh, employee, former employees or uh, even competitors and then see, what, you know, how those things match up, or if they do at all. Um, I also like to focus a lot on the capital allocation. That's the important part. How do they think about how do they think about reinvesting the profits that the business makes, and do they have some sense of return as being a, an important principle of that? Um, so those are important things. Um, those are two big ones, I would say: com competition, capital allocation. I'm wondering how how are you able to even kind of like see through the BS occasionally? and just like really cut through that. Is there anything you've learned over the years? Well, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, anytime you get the buzzwords and I always, you know, uh, I don't like that. You don't, don't want too much. Of, you don't want a short-term focus either. If they're talking about quarters, then that's probably not a good thing. If they're not talking about ultimately the cash generation of the business, that's probably not a good thing. Um, if they're overly focused on their stock, that can also be a red flag. Um, yeah, I think those are some of the main things. 
Has there been a, a manager that you've probably spent more time studying than anyone else? Uh, I don't know. Outside of somebody like Warren Buffett. <laughs> uh, I don't know. No one comes to mind. I mean, I've spent a lot of time on the names I own. So like a Willis Johnson at, at Copart, you know, he wrote a book, uh, Junk to Gold, which is a good short read. Got an interesting story. Uh, you know, there's not a whole lot on Mark Leonard Constellation, but um, he's worth he's worth studying. Uh, you know, the Mendelssohn's at Heiko have done a really good job long-term, worth studying how they do business. Um, sometimes, you know, there's not as much out on these people. So I have great respect for Brown and Brown, Brown family, what they've done over time, but it's not like there's a whole lot out there to read. Uh, so those are some of the challenges you have. Yeah. Well, I, I just appreciate what's coming through is just a true student of the game, true student mm -hmm. of the craft and, and finding some of these sources here. One of the things you were saying a few minutes ago, I'm pretty sure it was around incentives. You're like, that's something I've been trying to better understand. Same thing around culture. What else have you been trying to understand for over a decade now that you're still just like in hot pursuit of? I'd love to find some some way to kind of peek around a corner a little bit. Uh, and, and this is where I have a bias where I like to invest in businesses that are showing good returns on capital today, you know, good returns on capital. Uh, they're already there, good reinvestment rates today, and then it's easier to kind of project forward. But I'd love to kind of be able to find a, or get better at, you know, finding a company that's just kind of more a little earlier where their returns on capital are going to be very good over the next five or better than they have been. So being able to catch these little inflection points is is a really an art. And uh, I would love to figure out ways to kind of peek ahead somehow and get get little early indications that something has changed with the business. Is there anything that you've come to find, let's call them around patterns around inflection points? And, and these could be positive inflection points or negatives. Is, is there anything that you've seen either in, through different quarterly reports or things like that, that can give you a preview that something may be happening, but whether it's positive or negative? Well, negatives are easier. I mean, uh, you know, any kind of sizable acquisition that seems to be out of the norm is always a red flag uh, or any kind of significant step away from, what has been their stated capital allocation policy, then it's a sudden change. That's always a red flag. Um, you know, we talked about incentives. Uh, another red flag would be sort of an egregious compensation scheme. It's always a bad sign. I don't want to mention any particular stocks, but there's one where CEO's pay has gone up like 10x in three years. Uh, and where they're always seems to be taking, they always seem to be taking an action that makes it more difficult for shareholders to be heard. So um, those are always red flags. Uh, on the positive side, that's one where I would like to work on a little more. I don't know. I, I mean, there's some obvious things like, you know, you get a shift in return on incremental capital, which signals somehow and there may be some kind of industry change, you know, a large competitor. Uh, let's say a competitor starts to really struggle or there's a wide gap between. Uh, I mean, one of the things I always like to look for is market share gain. So if you have a business that uh, is just outperforming its peers by a, a large margin 
Um, you know, Old Dominion Freight Line started, for example, we mentioned them before, trucking. I think it was maybe 10 years ago, their market share was like 2.5% and it's 10% today. So, you know, sustained level of taking market share. And they're still taking market share at around 1% or so a year. So I love those situations where you can find a business that has a small market share, it's gaining market share, and still the overall percentage is, is still pretty small. Um, that can be an indication of a good long runway to go. So those are some things that come to mind, but those are things I'm always still looking to add clues to. Yeah. No, what I appreciate so much is is this adding clues, but also to kind of getting rid of some of the past thinking that doesn't work. And, and one of the things I'm pretty sure you said this, if you're not cringing at the work you did five years ago, you're probably not getting better. Um, yeah. and, and so I'm wondering for you, just analyzing, let's call it like the last five to 10 years. Are there certain yeah. things you had to get rid of certain beliefs or ideas that just weren't serving you correctly? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think one of them is, um, well, I mentioned before, you know, being overly influenced by kind of the multiple you pay now and not taking into account necessarily the return on capital and reinvestment rate and how that can really propel a stock going forward. So I remember looking at Copart way back in 2011 and, uh, yeah, I remember thinking it was kind of expensive then because it was trading at like 25 times earnings or something like that, let's say. <laughs> but, you know, the stock's up 10x since then, something like that. But if you go back and see what you could have paid for that business at that time, it's like 67 times earnings and still made 15% return annually over the next decade. So we had a four-bagger. So sometimes I think you can get um, maybe a little bit hung up on the multiple today and you overlook the power of a, of a high growth, high growth rate, high returns. So that that's one example. Of when I look back, uh, I also, there's, even though, uh, you know, capital allocation is important. Everybody knows 10 years ago, I would say I was much less uh, critical of that. So I would have taken a dividend and, uh, or been okay with regular buybacks and not appreciated um, a business that was able to grow and reinvest all of its capital and grow organically as much. So, um, you know, you get some of these businesses that they always just seem to be cheap and they just bump along and don't go anywhere. Part of it is that their capital allocation, you know, they're, they're not reinvesting it wisely. Hmm. So um, I think earlier on too, I remember not paying nearly enough attention to competition as I do now. Uh, I remember, you know, competitive advantages always sound a little bit academic and people always want to talk about Michael Porter and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but it's really, really important because obviously you can't have a business compound. If you want to own a business for 10 years, you have to have, make sure you have a very strong competitive position. So I remember being much more lax about that. So I'd be involved in certain retailers and restaurant stocks that then, you know, just didn't work out, even though valuations were low. And the business performed okay, you know, you're, they're not, the stocks didn't really work. So those are some things that stand out. One of the things we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, I would love to circle back to is around what you're paying attention to, but I, I'm even thinking more specifically multiple things that you're doing, right? Like you need to be taking in, in more information. You need to be able to distill it down, under, understand it. You also do a lot of your writing. You're on all these calls. How do you think about the the format just of your day and, and what that looks like? 
Yeah. Well, there's certain things I prefer reading. So anytime, you know, transcripts or earnings calls, I definitely like to read those. Uh, anytime management speaks anywhere, I'll read a transcript of that. I like these uh, expert networks and some of the talking to competitors and things. Those those can be a good source of little nuggets about how businesses work. So that's something I, I'm reading something like that almost every day as well. Obviously, you're much more busier around earnings season, going through different releases of not only the company you own, but like a competitor. So maybe if I, I own Copart, but I'll also follow, see what IAA reports. Those would be kind of the higher quality things that I read. And then, uh, you know, I don't read as much uh, investment letters as I used to. That's another thing. Perhaps uh, we talked about things you have to get rid of. One is this idea that you're just going to kind of copy somebody else who seems to be successful at <laughs> You know, cloning, I guess, is it can be very successful, can be successful, but ultimately I think you got to find things that you like and that you've done the work on and that you're comfortable holding and um and and not be so concerned about what others think and appreciate that for every business there's gonna be a a bull and a bear case and um and yeah, not not be overly influenced by opinions of other people. So those are probably the top priority things. And it's different from what it was even, say, 10, 10 years ago for sure. I mean, I would have spent, if you would ask me what my typical day would have been, I would have started by saying, oh, yeah, I read the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. And I don't, I don't read those things on a daily basis anymore at all. Um, so the diff structure of my reading is totally different now. It's much more structured to that. You know, if you were a long-term business owner, what would you be interested in versus necessarily trying to figure out what the next few quarters might be? No, that's really helpful. Chris, I'm wondering if you were going to do this, right? Like be able to sit down with anyone dead or alive, just ask away different questions of who would you love to do that with? <laughs> uh, gee, in the investing world, I mean, shoot, who wouldn't want to sit, especially with like uh, Warren Buffett, say even a little earlier, maybe not now, but let's say when he was younger, it would have been really interesting to talk to him mm -hmm. uh, when he was more of an investor in, in, uh, stocks versus now he's, you know, mostly running, owning businesses in their entirety. Uh, or Charlie Munger early on would have been great to pick his brain, just sit there and talk with him. Those are the two I, I'd put at the top. Um, I mean, there are some, I mean, I've had some great conversations with Chuck Ockre. He's a good source of, of wisdom for me. Uh, those are the, the investing minds that come to work business minds that that come to mind was that chuck calling right now yeah i don't know who that was <laughs> no chris this has been fascinating for me I, I love this like i mentioned uh i've learned a lot from your writing over the years how, how you see things that not only relate to investing uh, but also are applicable to the rest of your life you've got a lot of interesting stuff um a lot of resources listeners can go to where would you want to direct them I mean, I think the best is uh, you could go to my uh, blog, which is on the Woodlock House Family Capital website. So I've written a bunch of stuff there. Uh, and I, I'm on Twitter. So uh, sometimes I go through stretches where I don't post anything, but um, I'm a regular poster of stuff on Twitter. So uh, my handle there is Chris W. Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R. Those are probably the two best places to follow what I'm up to. Fantastic. Well, as always, all that will be linked up in the show notes here in the transcript. But Chris, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Hey, good to be on with you, Sean. Good, good questions. And it was a fun conversation. Thanks for having me. 
You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.